We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped gum to teeth in your throat, tiger, without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I'm Jaren Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. We all feel the sad, the funny, the beautiful, but the weird is strange, it's unique, it's peculiar, it's what makes us human. I'm your host, Jared Surf, and here with me today is Michael Rosado Bennett, the director of the Sundance award-winning documentary Alive Inside, and founder of the educational charity or foundation, you would call it? Um, I would call it a movement. A movement, okay. And what does Alive Inside as the movement focus on? The Alive Inside movement is a way to inspire young people to experience what I experienced making the film Alive Inside, to have the opportunity to sit before an elder, even an elder who is lacking certain aspects of mind, and to have the gift of, of giving them back the music from their youth, from their becoming, and to wake them, to experience what it's like to give life and memory to another person. I think we live in a culture where the generations don't know each other. And I think there's a great healing that happens when music is the vehicle that, that allows the generations to see each other. So Michael today is going to be joining us to share both a bit of the story behind Alive Inside, but also his own personal journey and partly what has driven him to pursue this course in his life. I hope you all enjoy the show. But really, there's a rational argument you're making about the need for empathy as you define it. Right. And your story, what you've experienced, what you've gone through in life, this encounter with yourself. That's what I feel is, is a, more, um, a more valid approach. Yeah. I've had a journey, you know, discovering my own capacity yeah. for empathy. You yeah. know, it didn't, I wasn't born with it. No, you, you described to me that you were angrier quite often when you were young, that you were filled with rage. And then I know even what you've written there's this mention of your brother as the one who left the family and right. everything he departed from. And partly because I'm a writer, I always wonder when people go and do things the why, what is driving them to do or beat it. So for me, part of why I run podcasts is that as much as I like telling stories, I like finding out other people's stories and why those exist, why they are moved to make them and live in them. I think, as I had told you before, the idea I was having with this season was that, are you familiar with the TV show, The Adventures of Pete and Pete? It came around probably... Oh, good God. Yeah. Oh, wait. I thought, I thought you meant Horace and Pete. Probably a similar th sensation, though. This was from my youth, but I think every generation has had it. It's similar to the Wonder Years in the sense that about two siblings and their weird misadventures as kids in the family, and it's obtuseness and peculiarities and picadillos, but it was honest in a way that a lot of shows about people and family weren't. They interviewed the two writers about of the show, though, and one of them admitted that the show is basically wish fulfillment for life as a child. He'd always wanted to have it. He could have gone the crazy adventure and survived it and told his parents. But they asked him what made the best shows. What was the formula, the recipe that made this work? And he said the best ones were funny, they were sad, they were strange, and they were beautiful. They always had those four. So after listening to an interview on that, I was thinking, well, do the stories that captivate us, do the ones that we find meaningful have those beats necessarily? Are these kind of like a heartbeat? or a sensation we work through toward a catharsis, toward a thing. So 
I'm exploring stories that seem to me to strike on or to hit these chords. Mm. I interviewed three brothers who, who talk about pop culture and everything, but their initial talk is pop culture. And through it, you start to learn about their anxieties, their word dynamic, the fact that their father is absent from their lives. And I have a later recording with them where we talk about mental illness in college and where these things emerge from. So they've been wide-ranging what I've recorded. I recorded talking to some friends about the trauma my father nearly died from twice this summer and just put record, had my reaction, no plan, no outline whatsoever. So I was angry and cursing, and but I wanted to capture grief. Mm. So in that sense, when I ask you to share these stories, I do it for one. I think there's the... Well, I mean, I, 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 you know, like, mm. I, I tell you what, it's really sweet and touching what you just said, you know, that stories should be beautiful and funny Mm -hmm. and beautiful, funny. What was the other one? I think the initial phrasing was funny, sad, strange, and beautiful. Funny, sad, strange, and beautiful. Like, that is so fantastic. Mm -hmm. You know, like, right now I'm trying to spark an empathy revolution. I'm trying to inspire young people Mm -hmm. to put themselves in front of somebody with dementia. Because mm-hmm. it's something no one ever does. Certainly not willing, and certainly not as a journey. And, and and I feel like you just gave me like another piece to the puzzle. Like like I should charge them with coming back with a story mm-hmm. that's both funny, sad, strange, and beautiful. Because that's really the thing about stories mm-hmm. and why they're so useful is because they contain wisdom. Yes. But, but what is that wisdom? The, the wisdom is a little instruction mm-hmm. on how to navigate life and come out the right way. Don't come out warped and mm-hmm. angry. Don't come out, um, you know, filled with greed. Don't come out, you know, manipulative. Mm-hmm. And there's something in those four words that's really almost instructive. In other words, if you can come out. Mm-hmm of your own life and look at it and see it as funny, sad, strange, and beautiful, you're probably more accurate in, in, in your analysis of life. And, and how you your, see both yourself and how you were able to understand others. Right. And, and I think we're, that's exactly what we're living in. We're living in a time mm-hmm. that is phenomenally funny and phenomenally sad, heartbreakingly sad, mm. and, and equally beautiful and equally strange. So the thing about it is that you can't really comprehend. Right. And that's that's the thing about this challenge that I'm doing with these kids and, mm-hmm. and with dementia is that you're sitting face to face with all that you can't understand. Because what you're looking at is a human being that's lost its mind, mm-hmm. but is still there in their heart and their self. You're looking at a human being who's like literally inches away from the end mm-hmm. and yet has lost certain capacity to express their feelings about that and when you play them their music you know they they laugh and they're 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 sad Mm -hmm. and they're beautiful and it's a little strange but that's really what i would like these kids to come back with that's really the the arc of my own journey just finding that moment of finding this treasured moment in a sense or beholding someone of finding that person in there that there's a life there still. There's someone I can connect with that I've never met before or right. I haven't seen in ages. And, 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 and that's what's so phenomenal yeah. about this is that 
you know, here I am sitting in front of you and I don't really know you that well. Right. And I'm not a hundred percent sure I trust you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I don't know, maybe, maybe you're going to try and sell me some insurance <laughs> that I don't need at a tremendous. I market. used to work for an insurance company. Yeah. <laughs> but when you sit in front of somebody with dementia, yeah, their soul is transparent. They don't have the capacity to lie. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a reflection of your own deepest self, yourself without your mind. One of my friends who's gone through quite a fair bit of trauma in her life, she was commiserating on family issues and loss of husband and family and cancers resurgence and just people who refuse to be better or be better in any sense, be nicer, be kinder, be more gentle as they aged. I love what you just said there. You know, people, that's what I was talking about, about yeah. the bastards in my family. Exactly that. People who refuse to mellow with age. You know, and in one hand, there's something admirable about that. Right. It, it, that they have the force of will. Mm -hmm. Usually it's it's force of will. It's usually, you know, the life that they lived has crushed them in some ways. And yet, then the only way they found to survive was to be tough, mm -hmm. strong, or angry. Mm -hmm. You know, but the truth is, is that that's just the defense. You know, and that's the kind of defense that comes out of all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I last night I, I had a I, I had a hard day and I, I had a, I, I took a little nap and I, I had this dream filled with anger, just epic rage. And, and I woke up and I was like, my God, I understand these people that do shootings. I have so much in my life. I have people that love me. I have right. work that I adore. I have a chance to make a difference in the world, you mm -hmm. know. But there was a time in my life where I had nothing, you know, where where I didn't even know how to make a living, you know, and I would work for somebody doing some stupid work. Mm -hmm. And then I would get a traffic ticket on my way to home and it would literally cost more than I made that day, you know. And there's so many people that are caught in these traps, mm -hmm. you know, so many families that, that are caught in like the, the trap of prison or the trap trap of taxes or the trap of alimony or the trap of of a dead-end job, right? you know, and it's so heartbreaking. This is how we live. I cut off track. No, it's fine. I mean, I, I can pull it back. But I think it is relevant that what my friend told me as Pastor Hurts was that people don't change. They don't become better. They become more themselves, more of themselves. Things fall away, and they start things, to find. Things fall away. Yeah, I had a, a nonfiction teacher who used to prefer the Hegelian synthesis as her rationale for why this happened. That you know you get into your you get into your cognitive dissonances where one idea and the other can't fight, where they can't stand to exist in the same place. So they fight, and the synthesis emerges out of that that takes the best of both. And in her mind, there was always a thing given up or sacrificed. So I listened to that as she tells us this thing. This is how you write nonfiction. This is how you write argument. It's and then, also how you age. It is, because as she told me at the very end of my time working with her, she said, when I was 18, I ran away from home because I hated my parents and there was nothing they could give me. And I spent my life living on my own, not married, not having kids. And then finally I adopted and raised my daughter. And at 18, do you know what she did? She ran away from home. She stayed. And oh, then nice. two years later, she became a mother. And now I'm a grandmother. And I have no idea what that means. Because I have no framework, no context, no understanding. I thought she would just run away from home because that's what children are supposed to do. Right, right, right. And here I mean, you know, there's a poet that talked about that, how 
Yeah. You know, your childhood never leaves you. It's your companion throughout your whole life. It's mm-hmm. the, the mirror with which you look at yourself. And that's one of the things that I really feel profoundly upset about is that in our culture, we don't even have language for the evolution of a being. You know, we, we, we don't even have rites of passage anymore. The closest you have is the old Sphinx rhyme from, was it Oedipus? Mm-hmm. What a, walks on four legs when, you know, walks on four legs when young. I don't even, I can't even remember, but it, essentially the, what can walk on four legs two and three at the same time? Of course, it's man as a child crawling as a full adult and eventually as an elder with a king. Right. But it's that the story of man is not status. The story, stasis, the story of man is transformation. Right. But I think we live in a world that wants to deny that. You know, we live in a world that wants to create boxes, unchanging boxes. We get put in them at the end, so why not? <laughs> we get put in them at the end. Put it in the ground, put, in the, put it in the earth. Right. Well, all that may be true, but that discounts the fabulous sin- symphony right. of a human being becoming. Well, and becoming doesn't occur just by having your parents send you to preschool, having schools tell you what an ethical human being is. Becoming occurs when you sit down with your old bitch of an Aunt Sylvie, who you hated through your entire childhood, and you realize there's more to her. That's when you realize, I am blind, I only see a few things a child as a child, and there are things I didn't understand, I still don't yet, but I'm beginning to now as an adult. Well, we live in a culture that denies death. Yes death for humans. And interestingly enough, in the story I told you of my Aunt Sylvia, you know, she didn't let things fall away until she became very close to death. And I couldn't see the beauty in her right. until she did that. Can you walk us through what Sylvia was like when you were young? What was it like to see her, to be with her, to visit her? Did you Was this an occasion that you guys would go to her? Or was it only sometimes when she would deign to come to you? How did that work? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure everyone has a bastard or two inside their family. Right. You know, and I've our family has had our share of bastards in it. And Sylvia was, you know, cantankerous, stubborn, beautiful. What did she look like? Oh, my God. She was, she was first of all, when she was young, she was so gorgeous. And mm. she never, ever, like, lost her petite. She was only four Five, four or five feet. She was like five feet tall. Tiny. Tiny. Yeah. Thin bones like a bird. She was mm. a poet. Really? And everything was conflict with her. Everything had some tint of of anger or guilt or disappointment. What was the worst of them? I mean, was there something she would chide you on constantly? Um, well, it wasn't so much me. It was, I didn't grow up that much with her because I didn't grow up with my family. I, right. I was kind of off on my own. Uh, and I came back later, and I and I and I and I watched her dynamic with uh, my mother mm-hmm. and my brothers, and and I, you know, I was a little older, so I, it really didn't get me. But you could see her effect on others. Oh my God! Yeah, she she would just tie my mother up in knots, you know, and and they had this dynamic of of literally causing each other pain, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was just. Um, it's so interesting, you know, in my own life, like I came from such suffering mm-hmm. and like you, you know, like you the friend you described, you know, I have somehow, I, I'm very much like your friend, the teacher. Like mm-hmm. when I had my children, I thought I should hit them. 
because I was hit. I thought that's how you heal. That's what you do with children. And my wife, what you learned, that's what I learned. And my wife said, "No, you don't do that." Mm -hmm. And I literally had no other, nothing else in my tool bag. Right. You know, and it is possible for human beings to change. You know, it is possible to learn. You know where the marrow and the sweet juice of life is. I, I just marvel at how my own family, and I'm talking about, you know, lots of people, mm -hmm. seem to have evolved in some way. Like we've gotten less cruel. We've gotten less lost. What made Sylvia so angry and so bitter? What was it that she'd lost? Well, that's the thing. She was a beautiful, artistic woman. She was. I don't think she ever had a chance to. I think in her time, the only way to for her to survive was to be a wife, mm. you know, or to be a caretaker. And and she did. She literally took care of all of the old people in our family, mm -hmm. you know. And she hated it, even from when she was young. Well, when she's, you know, when they started dying, right. And you know, she ended up inheriting all their wealth, all of their wealth, right. And so he, you know, but she hated it. You know, so it, she didn't like having the money. She just inherited it as a de facto man. No, she liked having the money. Sure, okay. She liked having the money, but she didn't like the caregiving that much. You know, it was it wasn't the life she wanted. It wasn't the life she wanted, okay. and and I think she had like inside of herself, like you know, a bitterness and an anger. And one of her her first husband, you know, ended up dead in a bathtub, murdered by the mafia. <gasps> he was a lawyer who was apparently dirty. Oh, yeah. She never knew it, you know. Mm -hmm. She was a passenger in life. Her mother, her mother had my mother when she was fifty-one years old. Mm -hmm. and that was that was the oldest child ever born in Chicago at that time mm -hmm. before drugs. Yeah, you know. And I don't know why she was mean, you but see, she was. She was a poet. She was a poet. Did she share that with you? Was it something you found? No, yeah, she shared. She was very. I come from a family of flamboyant artists. Right. You know, my, my mother's a choreographer and a dancer. Mm -hmm. My brothers are musicians. And my stepfather's a composer. Right. You know, I'm a filmmaker. You mm -hmm. know, like we all create a creative kind of people. And there was this kind of, you know, like it's, I think it's very funny. Like I came from a very novel family where everyone was creative. Mm -hmm. But now everyone is creative. I mean, right. everybody's making beats on their iPhones. The or, means by which you can create are so accessible now they're so accessible now and actually like i'm a filmmaker at one point there were only a hundred filmmakers in new york city right you know now everyone with a phone is a filmmaker mm -hmm. and the tools of, of documentary filmmaker have been usurped by reality television so what i'm just trying to say is that we came from a time when being an artist was special it was, uniqueness. It was unique and there's okay. a darkness to that in that if you choose to find your identity in your specialness, mm -hmm. you know, you're kind of actually not free because you're holding on to a construction, you know, when perhaps like the true obligation of the artist is to be free of, of constraint. Is this when you say that we build, we live in houses built of our own trauma in the sense that we create these constructs, both physical and mental, that are cages to us for the things we want in life is this an example of this the artist building up this expectation of what an artist should be i should either suffer to inspire or i should be freed enough to right, right? just the i should yeah I, know, I love what you said we build these constructions that that become our prisons right 
you know, and, and, and we're unconscious of it. I think, mm-hmm. you know, like we think we live here and now, you know, but our past is still with us. You know, we still live in the repercussions of being slaveholders. You know, we still live in the repercussions of having participated in world wars. Mm-hmm. We still, you know, live in the repercussions of having treated the earth as though it were our Plato and our thing to manipulate and our inheritance and our to do with what we will, you know, like there's repercussions to all of these things. And since we're still children in the playground that haven't seen what we've done in the sand. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that we live now in a time where the earth is giving us feedback and it's saying, you know, your numbers are so great and your footprint is so powerful and heavy that it can't go on. Is that part of the burden of age, though, even just on an individual level? I mean, what do you think led Sylvie to telling you about this story, the the efforts, the extraordinary efforts to save your brother that they had committed to? Well, you know, that's the interesting thing. So Sylvia, this woman that I thought was so, so mean, you know, I didn't I didn't find out about sort of the, the kind side of her, the sacrificing side, the side of her that that gave so much, you know, and it was probably, it's probably that she gave so much and felt like she'd received so little, Hmm. you know, that made her so bitter. I remember being a child and and one day realizing, you know, wow, I really haven't given anybody anything. I've just been receiving, Mm -hmm. you know, is there ever a time where it shifts, you know, and then you become an adult and you're like giving, 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 Mm -hmm. usually like a, like, like a man, a man works. And he makes money and the money's not his. Right. It supports his family. It supports, you know, the world. He gives and he gives and he gives and what's left, what's there, what's him. That's the thing. If you don't receive meaning and value and, and it makes me sad to see so much of our world set up in a way that robs people of the value of their giving. Mm-hmm. There's very few authentic ways to mentor another person. You know, there's very little space for that. I found in our in our culture, and it's there's a, there's so much deep sadness in our in in the myths that propel us. My brother has special needs, and the the hardest thing we have both experienced and helped others through first is the diagnosis because he's 30 years old. So back then, of course, it was put him in an attic, stuff him away, forget about him, just you know let him be. He's your kid, keep him alive. Rather than that, there's nothing you can do, and now systems are in place for youth with special needs. Now they're in place for high school students. But these are a population of people who've seen the world around them and go, I want to live as adults. I want to marry. Maybe I want to have kids, but we want to have jobs. We want to be like everyone else. And I don't want to be like everyone else. The thing is that, one, there are not in many cases the their elders or their seniors or their mentors to walk them through. And two, in many cases, there are not those people for the families around them to go, how do we live this? How do we navigate through this? Because it's not... Right. Well, I mean, look, we live in a culture that values the individual right. above all else. And the reason it does that is because we live in an economic world. Mm-hmm. And the individual is the end purchaser. And the value of a human being to our culture is as a purchaser. Mm-hmm. is as something that pushes the engines of commerce. Mm-hmm. Okay. And taxes. Right. And so all that's valuable is increasing those desires and needs. You know, most people are like 
tea bag. I mean, like they're like they're like a tea bag. Well, that's not the right. Unusual connotations. Well, yeah. How can I say this? So, are you trying to connote that they're kind of like a sieve? Things pass through them. No, no, not at all. What I'm trying to say is they're like water. Sure. That their entire life has been steeped Hmm? with a tea bag of brainwashing. (laughs) Okay. You know, like 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 from childhood, these children are inundated with these commercial messages telling them. You are an individual. Your needs, desires are are important. You know, there's actually in our culture, there is no we. Okay, right. the we that there is has been reduced to our basis biological we. Human beings cannot get through life without bonding with each other. Mm-hmm. That's what we 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 do. That we have no capacity to live without bonding. But the only bonding right now that's acceptable is that. Is the family, the, the nuclear family. Okay. And it's within a distorted field because the outer field is saying there is no we, there's no grand we. Like America, what is our country anymore? It's There is no America. There is no, you know, the only time we have countries is when we want to band together into the most profitable effort called war. It's fascinating. My graduate and undergraduate days, back when I was still writing for politics and socioeconomics, one of the things that ended up leading to both these conversations often was identity politics. The sense that you could not talk about a nation or a country without violating an individual sense of self by challenging any of the precepts related. If you say America is or isn't this, you're not talking about America. The person listening hears you talking about them. And that sense of identification so closely with a intangible, with an intangible, when all around you are people that you would think of or should come first to mind. And it's it's hard. I mean, on the flip end, I can go to a hospital and my father's been hit by a car and tell the doctor, I understand that you can't give a damn more about him than anyone else, but I have to. I have to because I know that you can't. I know that you can't always. So I have to be loud and demanding and insist and when needed. That's that's where we've come. We've come to where you know we've learned that the world doesn't care. It cares like the minimum that it can care. And so, and I mean, I'm, I'm a, a student of healthcare. And sure. Everyone has to now. They un, everyone understands you must be your own advocate mm-hmm. because you're inside of a system that really it doesn't care. It doesn't care. Well, like it, humans the message you get is that it cannot afford to. It cannot afford to pay attention to you. Yeah, exactly. which is a surreal thing because you are what's being cared for, but exactly. only in the context of a kind of health. So, Sylvia, what? Was it a physical failing? Was it a, you know, what was the end for her? My aunt, you know, had glaucoma. Okay. And I think she died of cancer. Right. And I told you the story of, um, you know, we we all got a phone call saying, you know, Sylvia's on her way out. Mm -hmm. Come to California. And so the whole family came from the four corners of of America. Right. Basically, if you took our family, which started in Chicago a hundred years ago, Mm -hmm. and you dropped it in Chicago, and then you said, you know, take your time, take a hundred years, <laughs> and get as far away from each other as you can humanly do, <laughs> and still stay in America, that's our family. Wonderful. You know, we're, we're spread from every corner, and as far from each other as we can, but we all came to be there beside Sylvia, to be at her deathbed. You know, the, I told the story of my brother, and my brother is, you know, for me, one of the most interesting people in my family. 
in some strange way, if he hadn't suffered very young, my life would have been completely different. One day my mother looked down in his eyes and she saw something white in there. And she rushed to the hospital and showed the baby to the doctor. The baby was nine months old. And the doctor said, oh my God, thank God you brought him. If you'd been a few days later, mm -hmm. you waited a few days, right. um, he'd be dead. He has gratina blastoma, he's cancer of the eye. And it's, it's half an inch from the optic nerve. Once right. he hits the optic nerve, it shoots straight into the brain and it's over. And he's, my father was there by then and he said, the doctor said to my parents, you have an hour to make a decision. Do you take out his eye, both eyes? Right. And he survives. Or do you take out, do nothing, and he dies? Right. Or there's this new thing called radiation therapy. It's very much, hasn't been figured out quite yet. But the idea is that we would shoot beams of radiation into his eye and mm -hmm. kill the cancer. One eye, we can't even do that to. You have to take it out. Mm -hmm. But that's your choice. Those three options. What do you choose? You have one hour. And my father, it was my father's decision somehow. And he said, we're going to take out one eye and we're going to try and save the other eye. Hmm. We're going to risk him dying and the possibility of saving some sight for the boy. And um, so that's what they did. And I didn't learn about this until I was at my, my aunt's deathbed. But what happened was the doctors, there was no technology for holding a baby's head. Mm -hmm. They took all of the older members of our family who were above childbearing age, covered them in lead, with mm -hmm. lead smocks and lead gloves, and had them hold this little baby's head as they chimed the radiation into his temple. Mm. And treatment after treatment after treatment, and they did it. They burned away the cancer. And so this nine-month-old child, who would have died in any other time, survived. Mm -hmm. You know, but the radiation affected his bones and his oh, sure. head and, 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 and everything. This is the this is the beginning of radiation treatment before we even learning the potential out the potentials of harm in the long term. No, this is the very beginning. We were there at, at my Aunt Sylvia's deathbed, and this woman who had been just the the meanest, meanest person in some ways. I mean she was sweet too, but just she had anger that wouldn't go away. Just the life had not given her what she wanted. But at, when we were there, and she was so close to death, it was like we were with somebody we'd never been with. You know, she was, she became a little sweet imp, you know, who smiled and who, who smiled and she grabbed my brother's head. Yes, this, I love how you said this. She grabbed my brother's head. And you got to understand my brother. My brother, you know, I, th I think this sort of tragedy with my brother's eye. You know, studies have been done in mm -hmm. families that go through trauma, mm -hmm. the death of a child, huge medical problem. They, they don't stay together. No, they, there are scars that are that occur then. My mother's father died when she was six. Mm -hmm. She had, I am, no, ALS is my godmother. My, god, my mother had Bright's disease at six. <laughs> Prediction was full paralysis, mm -hmm. wheelchair bound. Her father was a soldier, and he looked and said, no. He just looked and said, no, you're going to walk. I don't care how, we'll figure it out. And so they went to Mass General. They went to the, with the doctors there. There was a nun whose work had been done on polio. People were recovering where they would massage the muscles and ambulate them, even if they couldn't move on their own. 
assuming that if you could get the neurons and the muscle tissue to actually function and work, you could train it to engage, and eventually mm. the rest of the systems would come into place. Mm. And sure enough, now she can walk. Mm. But he died of a heart attack at 33 shortly after. Mm. And he died of a heart attack. Medically, you can say he died of a heart attack. But the story, the story that remains, he died because of her. That sentiment, that unspoken reality, that thing muttered in back corners by angry old relatives who had lost in that moment, he gave it up then. And of course, my uncle, her younger brother, was an infant at the time. This is he found a thought he found a father and his wife's dad as his surrogate because he didn't know a father. His oldest son is named after the man. But that pervasiveness, even though the man only lived thirty-three years, my middle name is his name. My cousins all share a middle name or a partial name with him, Leon. And it haunts. You can hear it, you can see it in the family gatherings. All of these things build like layers in the sand. They never go away, they just mix with everything else that's happened since. And I think it's, it's amazing that she held the story for so long, that she didn't share it. That for all of the things she wanted in life, she chose now to give this last gift. Mm. To all of you. It was very beautiful. Like, you know, she grabbed my brother's head. And this boy, you know, had grown up blind. Because when they fired the radiation into my brother's eye, it turned into a cataract. Mm. So he grew up blind. And then at 13, there was a new sur surgery that was invented where they chopped, ch chipped away the cataract and gave him a contact lens. Okay. And so he went from blind to 20-20 overnight. And because his... The radiation affected his bones. He, he grew up wearing braces, mm -hmm. huge braces that, you know, mirrored his legs from foot to hip. Mm -hmm. And his head kind of grew a little misshapen mm -hmm. because of the radiation. And so he grew up having to fight, but he also grew up with a blessing. And the blessing was that very young, he learned how to receive because he was helpless. Mm -hmm. And by learning how to receive, he was utterly beautiful. And everyone gave to him. And there I was, the boy who was fine. Mm -hmm. But no one gave to me. And I didn't know how to be beautiful like my brother. That you know, grace was his. It was, yeah. And he had that grace. And, yeah. I, and instead, I just grew angry and dumb. You know? He was touched by God. Like, mm -hmm. just... His capacity to receive was so beautiful. And, but again, there were some burdens on him. And he, he learned fabulous self-discipline because he, you know, to survive, he had to be incredibly disciplined. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's what happens when you're blind and you have to navigate the world, you know, you, everything is critical. And so he became this incredibly strong person. You know, he'd almost died when he was very, very young. Mm -hmm. And I keep going back to this theme that death seemingly is our most profound teacher. You know, he, he had an old man's fate very young. And my aunt, you know, didn't shed her shell of anger until she was very old and approaching her own death, you know. And, and I have learned from people who have died or are dying. You know, these people with dementia taught me a lot. Mm -hmm. So I just think that's very interesting that we, we, the death is so, has such gifts to us if we are able to open to them.
to understand and to accept them, to be there, be present for them. Right. So I was telling you about my brother. Yeah. I wanted to tie that into the story of Sylvia. So he decided, my brother, very young, decided that he was going to go on his own life. Mm-hmm. And he, he left home at like 14. Mm-hmm. He went to live at a friend's house in Florida. Okay. And um, you know, he just found, he was trying to find his own way. But he was very self-contained, very kind of interesting to watch. He didn't mm-hmm. really, he had loneliness, but it was almost as though he'd received enough when he was young to, to last in his life. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a deep sense of security, something I didn't have. You know, I was thrashing around, and trying to find love in various women and trying to find myself, and I failed miserably at it, at all. Did you feel that he knew or had found what was safe to him, what was right and comfortable? He he had, he was a very coalesced human being, okay. very young, and it's something that I have recovered, but I didn't, you know, it wasn't, it was, I didn't have it young. But you felt envy, you felt jealousy for that, or? Well, you, you know, you don't feel, I mean, maybe when I was very young, I sure. felt jealousy, I mean, I, I did feel anger okay. at the world that I had these infinite hungers and they were completely understandable hungers. I mean, I was a child and a child needs a mother. Yes. And mine was gone, you know, because my family split up right after, you know, fairly soon after the operations and everything. As you said, trauma tends to break things. Yeah. Trauma breaks things. And but it's interesting. It's very, very interesting is that, I've learned that no matter what suffering, sometimes seeds are planted deep in the self that that can be watered even late in life, and that that you know the roots of the soul can spread, and they they're adaptive. You know they they can find sustenance in places where you don't think you'll find them. You know it's possible for a, a bastard to to become a sweet and deeply loving creature it's it's positive it's possible for an angry young man to to shed that anger and 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 husband and father and become a source of love even if if love was withheld you know in his view and so my brother was this he decided he decided he didn't even decide to come back to the family until he was in his 30s and then sylvia was at her deathbed and this miracle happened in our family was that my brother decided to come you know, my brother who'd always said no. And, I, you know, we didn't expect there to be any connection between this man who hadn't seen Sylvia since he was never seen her. Right. You who know, never knew her. Never even in a sense met herself. Her. Yeah. And he came and he sat beside her deathbed, you know, this strong man. And she grabbed his head and she pulled him down. And, and she said, you know, this is how I held your head when they covered me with lead. And asked me to hold you, keep you from moving as they shot that radiation into your eye. And this big, strong man had to look at her and and realize that he was looking at one of the people who'd saved his life. That he was only there because of this old lady, you know. And she 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 took his forehead and she kissed him, you know. And we were all sitting around the, the bed like like oh my god, like <laughs> Rob had never even met her. Mm-hmm. But that there was something between the two of them that was passing between the two of them that it was as if he knew her and he accepted her blessing and that all those years erased and he was 
totally the baby that she had held in her hand. Do you feel that she had to see that he was well? She had to know that she had saved him and that he was still good and healthy before she could finally let go? That was the one last thing she wanted or just to tell him? I think in that moment, she was incredibly proud of herself that she had given and that the result of her gifts was this magnificent young man. Had ended in life after handling death for so long and letting others pass from her hands that her last great act could be seeing the man she had helped live. Yeah, to kiss him on the forehead and, you know, bless his life. And to have her, to have my, my brother be honored, to have her blessing. To have the presence of self enough to know that he should come and do this, that he should come and meet her. It was more mystical than yeah. that. He bowed before the fact that he had family hmm. and that it was really important to him. It was important to him to touch the moments of his very childhood. It was a reverence to this. It was a, re- it was a reverent moment. And our whole family was sitting around the bed and we were just like, oh my God, we, we've never seen Rob with anyone in the family. We've never seen Sylvia do anything like this. It was amazing. I'm sure. I can, you know, I, it's like I talk about in like Alive Inside and in the work of the foundation, I talk about how music can bring you back. Music from your childhood can bring you back to times that you've lived before and to do it in absolute technicolor. Mm-hmm. With the technicolor that memories that involve all the senses and that moment of sitting there beside my brother and my aunt, I, I can tell you the color of the wall. I can tell you the sheen of my brother's hair. Mm-hmm. I can tell you the smile and the twinkle in Sylvia's eye. I can tell you the smell of the ocean coming through the window, and, you know, off the, off of the Pacific Ocean, off the, you know, off the cliffs of Santa Monica. I can tell you of the smell of, of an old lady's room. That moment is impressed upon you, and it is a moment impressed upon you that seals or encapsulates so many other moments or breaths of her rage and her anger. And that this final one, this last touch, is what helps you understand or see her, not as that child did, as that one who just watches bits of rage in the family's anger, but sees this person before him, beholds her. Mm. That is, it is a thing that quite often does not come outside of death, but it is a shame we have to reach that point before we will allow ourselves to be there enough. I guess we couldn't be there at all times. No. Or maybe we could. You've told me before that as a, chi- as a child and as a young man, as an adult, you did have a lot of anger. But when I see you writing about your son, there is this similar tone you take to when you have worked with these elders and brought music to them. There is this joy and this awe and this reverence and then you say you raised each other, me out of time and him in it. And I wonder what that means. But you followed up with this statement that he never would have survived your childhood. And to me, those say two very separate but related things. One, this understanding of how different the two of you are despite being family, but how necessary the two of you are for each other. And I wonder... What is it about this relationship that reminds you so much that helps you feel the same sense of reverence or awe or joy of this? I have to be able to do what Sylvie did then, but many times again and again before I am dead. I have to be able to sit with my son and hold and hold him and give him what little wisdoms I can again and again before I forget, before I am unable to. 
What was it like taking him to college? That must have been a, a rough experience for you. Dropping my son off and, and leaving him in, at college, uh, you know, you'd think that would be a, a happy time. And I, I'm happy, I guess, but honestly, I'm selfishly sad, actually. And I have to tell you, so it's so amazing that my son's challenges were, became gifts to me. Okay. You know, like my son was a beautiful child, but he had some strange wiring. Okay. You know, the mixture of my DNA and my wife's DNA. It was a strange mix. Did you find him hard to understand at times? He was a beautiful child. and But once we started, once you put him into school, mm -hmm. that's where the differences showed up. It's like, for me, you know, school was effortless. Right. You know, I got straight A's without even trying, and, mm -hmm. you know, because it was a simple puzzle. And the answers seemed very simple to me. Mm -hmm. and it didn't take a lot of effort for me to, to do. But for him, he couldn't do it. And we had him tested. It turned, you know, the, the doctor said, look, you know, we all have different minds. Mm -hmm. We're wired differently. And he's, he has something called proprioceptor problems. Like, okay. he has ideas and thoughts and feelings inside, but they he can't get them out. Right. And he used to say, Daddy, crush me. And he, what, he, what he meant yeah. was he would lay on the couch uh -huh. and then he would want me to lay with my full weight on top of him. Okay. And then have my wife lay on top of me. And then eventually my daughter lay on top of my wife with the dog. He needed this sense of like, he needed to be crushed. So he needed to be surrounded. He needed to feel his, his orders. And he's a, he didn't really, I mean, he had a couple of friends growing right. up. But he wasn't good at making friends. It no. just, he wasn't social. So I, I mean, I understood that because I'm half him. You know, I, whatever genes he has, or right. part of him are, are mine, you know. And I, that's how I grew up. I grew up so alone, mm -hmm. so unable to connect to people. And with nobody who really wanted to connect to me. You know, there was no mother mm -hmm. to come say, oh, come here, my child. Let me hold. And your father was busy. My with father was a beautiful man, but he was always going to work, and right. and this was just not his vocabulary. Mm -hmm. You know, although he, whatever I have, I probably got from him. Mm -hmm. You know, so he did give. Just it wasn't enough. He wasn't enough to be mother and father for this boy who had. You who know, is right? But so this boy, my son, you know, like very early, I realized that you know he needed to know that he was deeply connected to another being mm -hmm. and that he was deeply loved, like no matter what. Mm -hmm. And so I, for 18 years, I hugged him and he needed it. Like mm -hmm. he'd, he'd go and do the things of the world. And then he'd be like, dad, I need a hug, you know, and I'd have to hug him. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was giving him hugs because he needed them. Right. But then he went away to college <laughs> and I felt this, absence it, you know not having my boy to hug was it has been such a struggle for me <laughs> you know i realized i needed him as much as he needed me mm. and you know all this time i you know i feel i probably healed myself a bit in healing him you know if you know back when i was coming up in schools like there were bathrooms where they, they would pull you in and beat the shit out of you and put your head in the toilet yeah you know I spent like three straight years walking a mile home from school 
being punched the entire time mm. going home. So why was that? Were you just too different from the rest of them or too wrong? You know, the other day, I mean, I, I signed a contract with a man to uh, distribute my film. Right. And he's stolen $300,000. He's kept every penny that, <sighs> that he was supposed to give me. And I think it was me once again being the victim and joining forces with a bully. You know, like, there is still something inside of me. You wanted to connect to satisfy some kind of... I have no idea. No, huh. I, I don't understand. But I do know that, that some part of it must come from me. And the, this is something I must overcome. What I'm trying to say is that I knew if my son had had to endure the things that I endured growing up, mm. that it would have broken him. Not having a mother, not, not having, having a brother who was as healthy, who had suffered so much already, who had angry elders in his family. Not having a container with right. which to grow in at your own pace. And be protected. And be protected, you know. And so now he's in college by himself and he's he's doing crew. He's rowing crew. Mm. He's getting, he's become, making friends on the crew team. You know, he's, he's unfolding at his own pace. Right. And he has massive strength. He's, he's an Adonis. He's literally a being unlike a lot of other beings. He's six foot five. He's tall. You know, a couple of, about a year ago, he said he was a fat little computer kid, fat <laughs> big computer kid. Right. And he's like, Dad, I, I, I don't want to be fat anymore. And I said, okay, let's go to the gym. And he said, okay. And, and my wife said, let's count calories. Here's an app. Sure. So he started on the app and he never broke the commitment. Hmm. In one month, he lost 32 pounds. Wow. Then we started going to the gym. He went to the gym five days a week for a year mm -hmm. before he went to college. Mm -hmm. And he's now, he's got core strength and he's gorgeous. Mm. And that's because we raised this child. We let it, we gave it a good container. We let it grow on its own pace. And that's a kindness mm -hmm. that our school system doesn't do. It's a kindness that our elder care system doesn't do. It's a kindness that our medical care doesn't do. It's a kindness that our, our psychology doesn't do. It's a kindness that our military doesn't do. It's a kindness that... Sadly, I've worked with organizations whose efforts are primarily focused on what happens when soldiers want to have a civilian life and find that the means to enter it are less than admirable or necessary. You know, they're given... Well, of course, these are, these are distorted human beings. They've been they suffer. brainwashed for a boot camp. You know, the military is brainwashing. Even simple things like Public knowing... Public school is brainwashing. Knowing what their abilities Television mean. What their abilities mean in a world that doesn't need some of what they do. I, you know, I need to... My father, who's a vet, I sat down with early in this project and I said, okay, tell me what you did in the military. He's a geological surveyor. He's a sharpshooter. They would go on the helicopters to study photographs. They'd taken of the Russian tanks and analyze which ones were which and how many. And it took two or three times before I could get him to tell me what he did in a way that made sense in a business context. And they, that's great, but how can you help my company way? And it was, there, was, there were different languages. There were different ways of being. And this is a man who's good at explaining himself. So imagine people who've not even had that. But I think this, that, that level of containment of being helped and shaped and guided and when I hear you tell me the story of Sylvie and how she and the elders in your family held your brother, how they gave him a pot that could contain him, how they looked at something that probably could not have survived 
the wilds, whatever allegory you want to use, they gave him a small enough place that was safe to be raised in until he was strong enough to survive on his own. And I think this gets to this idea you were talking about of seeking safety and being blind to where it is, that we can try to find comfort in things that we think will give us place, give us home, give us friend and family. And so often in doing so or in chasing it, we forget or live without seeing where that is. And that's really kind of taken me to you know, a feeling that I have right now that's very useful to me. And, and, and that is that, that life itself is another thing that we don't have language for. Hmm. We don't have words for life. The life that inhabits you, the life that transmits from you to me, the life that we have as a community, the life that we have that every living thing has. Hmm. We don't even have language for it. It's a complete and utter blind spot. You have to go to other languages. I mean, you can dive into Greek and say something like Animus Mundi, which is the idea of a world essence. But even then, it's just a... There is There are two phrases. One is from Alfred Korzybski, who is called the father of modern semantics. But I think equally valid, and probably the older version, is the Zen koan that the finger is not the moon. In both cases, that the thing representing an object or a place or a concept is not the experience of it. You can ask me where the moon is. You don't need my finger to point you to it. It's right there. You can look at the well and see it. If I give you a map, that's not everything that's there. The map is things that aren't there, too. But when you start talking about it, actually, the third one that comes to mind, and I always find myself repeating this, my screenwriting teacher was Sidfield, and his teacher was Rim Larson. And one of the things he would always say in every class was, this idea of finding where silence works better than sound, where you sit and where you understand, where there's that moment of reverence where nothing is physically said, or when nothing is said in a verbal sense, there's no logos bringing things to life, but you live in that moment. Sylvie holds his head and conveys her depth of commitment, of love of compassion, and how everything she fought for still led to moments like this. And you can look at where your son is now and you can feel the pain you live through of having to hold him and realizing that it was not just for him, but for you as well, to find that sense of connection. But you can see, you have a sense now of that being worth the effort, worth the struggle, because this is the man he has become now. This is the life that has emerged. And those are things you can't easily contain in words. In fact, as I'm trying to do now, I use many words to say what is effectively a simple thing, but hard to express. Would you describe the work you're doing with Alive Inside, where you're trying to take it, as an effort to bring people, to bring elders and youth together so that they can find ways, find and share their ways to live? This girl, the other day, she went into a nursing home, and this uh, old woman looked up at her and said, I love you. <laughs> and this teenage girl goes, I love you too. <laughs> And she was like, I don't, she told me later, I don't know what's going, what was happening, but. She felt love for her in that moment. Yeah. And, 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 and there is a depth of experience that we've devalued in what passes for living in the modern world, in this, in this literal desert of interbeing. So I've just started a very simple challenge. I've just said, look, there are four million. Five million elders living with dementia. A great many of them have lost their music of their youth. Mm -hmm. Kids, why don't you be the one that gives it to them? You know. And so these kids come in and they play music for these 
elders and this music is so special hmm. because it travels into the base of these elders' minds and it goes into pathways that have been dormant for almost a century for some of these people. <laughs> it's incredible, yeah. And awakens the, the feelings, the memories, the smells of their own becoming. And the, these youth get to see a flower bloom that hasn't bloomed for half a century. And that is pure cognitive magic. There is a phrase, no self, no other. It comes out of Zen and Buddhist philosophy, but it strikes me as that sense of when you are handing them the music and being there with them, watching them share that, there is no rain and the ocean, there is just water. There is the joy of you watching and the joy of them experiencing, but in the end, there is just the joy of this. Yeah, I, I mean, I've come to feel, and as the Buddhists had done, that there are two minds, okay. for sure. There are a million minds, but one really simple description for us humans in this time is that we have our forebrain, right. you know, which is our cognitive sense and all that that entails. It's mm -hmm. model-making capacity. And then there's the root brain, which is movement and emotion. Mm -hmm. You know, and of course they share a lot of real estate, but the most important moments in anyone's life are not in the cognitive brain. They're in the root brain. You know, it's our root brain that bonds with other people and that can actually, that has the sensory equipment mm -hmm. that can feel the transference of information that actually bypasses the cognitive mind. And the very young have access to it. And the very old have access to it. And those with dementia have access to it. So it's it's just an illustration of experience mm -hmm. that's absolutely real. And, you know, I, I, I actually pity this generation coming up. What's it going to be like for them to have had their entire childhoods spent in referential experience? Like they haven't climbed trees every day. They've watched films and videos of climbing trees. Or of them climbing trees when they were younger. Or they play video games. Sure. Where people climb trees. Or you know, I mean Yeah, no, it's it's a the layers But I'm sure I'm sure it'll be fine because the human body and being, you know, it finds its way. Oh no, Jackson I was talking to earlier, he's ecstatic for the idea when we all transcend our mortal coils and live on the, the ethers. You know. Yeah. That, that there's a uh, you know, I'm 33, so Kurzweil is not a new thing to me, but I was a fat kid. I was a 240-pound fat kid, and I, like your son, realized I am not experiencing a part of life because of this. I don't know what it means for my body to make things work properly, to jump and to actually jump, to climb. And so finally, at 2020, when I was in decent shape again, I would do stupid things like climb trees and go to the gym too long and get hurt because... I could find, I could do them. I could live that part of my life I never really engaged in as a child. Partly because as an older brother of an autistic child and my father having Asperger's, I became an adult when I was very young. My father's a clinical depressant. So, and this you is, probably are somewhat Asperger's yourself. I, I would not be surprised because those things are genetic. But it's a... Right, so here's the interesting yeah. thing. So, you know, our greatest burdens eventually become the fuel for our mm -hmm. greatest wisdom. It's the story of the wounded healer. Mm -hmm. You know, had I not suffered young, I wouldn't have space in my heart for young people who are suffering or old people who are suffering. You know, 
if you were not really a, a rather poor connector, mm-hmm. if you were excuse for connection, like look at you, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're pursuing story. I would hazard that of all your gifts, that is not your greatest gift. It's probably the area you are the worst at. And yet, it holds enough challenge for you to pursue. Hmm. Like, probably, I don't know. Are you mathematical? Are you musical? Are you- Math is interesting for me. I'm numeralexic, so I reverse numbers. And I am mildly dyslexic. So, okay, so I taught myself reading and writing when I was very little, but the consequence is that I will, when writing, flip words, flip letters. That just could be, well, I don't know. I understand that. I'm no, it's bit that way myself. It's, but it's a... It's what you grew up with, so it's what you think things are. They're just part of how life was. But, you know, for me, oddly, it was structure. And I remember when I met Janet Fitch, she wrote White Oleander. Her works are phenomenally structured. They're paced and ironed out. And we were sitting with her after class and they said, Janet, how do you do that? And she goes, I'm going to confess I'm terrible at it. I spent my whole life making a dedicated practice of being a concise, consistent, and easy to pay, well-paced, easy to understand writer, because her mind naturally did not want to tell stories in that fashion. I record because I don't think linearly. You know, I dictate because if I were to write down what I was saying, I would have no idea what I was saying a minute ago. It's just I'm, not, yeah, my mind doesn't work that way, and I had to learn. You know, I'm like, I'm like really worried. I think maybe I have Alzheimer's or something. Like, what is contagious? Contagious. <laughs> so, I mean, my, my assistant says, I said, well, we need to record this. Because right. we did that yesterday. I'm like, oh, well, yes, we did. Yeah. Like, I'll write a song mm-hmm. and I'll play it back like a couple of days later and have no recollection at all of doing it. No, I find, I find with me when I'm in that creative state, which is probably not much of a forebrain state to begin with, my short term memory takes a nap. Or I shouldn't say it takes a nap, it's entirely dedicated to holding on to things that need to be fed into the creativity. So it cannot retain things as well because it's constantly pushing out. And then afterwards when I'm editing, I can keep in, oh yeah, I wrote that line five pages ago on the da-da-da-da and six, y, z. And it's the thing I find useful about writing, regardless of whether it's easier or not, and having taught it, I can tell you it doesn't get easier, as you know, <laughs> is that you have to learn how you think. It's inevitable that you begin to understand how your mind works. And for me, I would always hear music when I was little, when I was writing. There are completely interlinked. I cannot think of words without music, mm-hmm. and I cannot listen to music without thinking of the rhythm of words. Mm-hmm. And my parents were music fanatics. I grew up listening to classical music and White Rabbit and you know, Led Zeppelin. But that is a peculiarity that isolated me from a lot of people. And yeah, by and large, I read books, I played video games, I did stuff on my own because it was difficult to relate. I had to teach myself and find out why I would want to connect with others. And what I discovered is that people are infinitely fascinating. That when you started to hear them and listen to them tell what was sad or funny or beautiful or weird, you begin to see not just what is going around in the brain, but what's in the heart. And how that makes a person, how that person changes her. The weirdest one, or one of the weirdest ones, I have a friend who is very religious. And to him, death, going to heaven, is perfection. That is the ultimate. But of course, you can't make that happen because that's a sin. And therefore, no perfection for you. So he confessed to me that he still would love one day to tear it, to drive a Ferrari to pieces, to just take it in the desert and drive it and drive it and drive it until it disintegrated beneath them. And I looked at him and I said, that's because you have no way and no skill in making cars, do you? 
And because of that, because you cannot make a thing that is perfect, you have to break it and therefore prove that you are better somehow. It's not the perfection you want, but it's as close as you can humanly get. And he goes, yeah, is that strange? And I said, probably, but that's a manifestation of your desires and who you, know, who you are and you want. But there's, I have found for me an ability to love people in that. Because I have found, uh, people have asked me, don't you know anyone normal? And I said, yes, only the people I don't know. My brother is difficult. I fight with him still at 31 or 33 and he's 31. That probably won't ever change. I find myself tenser when I go to meet with him. And part of that is always a negotiation of what role am I in? Am I the adult? Am I the older brother? But no, there are things I would not, I would not have the patience for people that I do. I would not be the person that people come to for advice for to be to listen if I did not have to spend my childhood, my life learning to understand people and why they did things. So yeah, when I listen to teenagers go, wouldn't it be great to live in a computer? I can imagine, yes, but that story is already the body I'm in not existing and everything this physicality has taught me, both for better or for worse. It's everything I've walked through, every cut and every bruise, every person I've met, every hand I've shaked, suddenly those would be gone. And so in many ways, that that's an alien thing to me. And I was thinking, how do you convey Alzheimer's? How do you convey this loss of self to someone? I came up with this idea, although it's just a, you know, an exercise of writing down on index cards or something like it, songs and memories related to them, turning them face down, and then randomly taking out two, randomly taking out three, randomly t- until you've got one left. And what do you still have? Because from my experience with people with Alzheimer's, you don't get to choose what's left. And that's the part I find so devastating. You know, my aunt, her father, or sorry, her husband, her second husband, he's in his 80s. He's progressing into Alzheimer's. He's in a group that sings. The oldest member is 103. They play together. The guy goes into Italian opera fal- you know, falsettos at restaurants because he can still dig that out of himself enough. Is that here? In no, it's in Florida. But I'm working on trying to connect with him because I think this would be a, a natural connection. But it's a... I hear that story and go, I want to talk to them. I want to see that. I want to have other people because we act based on what we love, on who we connect with. And for me, I guess, when I sit down here with you and say, tell me your story of Sylvie, tell me your story of your brother, why this matters to you, I'm serving as the proxy for the reader, for any book or the thing, you, you know, the piece you're trying to work on now for why this is not just your story, but ours, why we have lived this already and are trying or are finding ourselves stumbling in a similar direction. Because empathy is not just a personal journey, at least as you argue it. Right? It's not just a thing that I individually should strive for. There is a sense that it has to be a value we commit to, a thing we build into our way of developing institutions and laws and policy. But I, mean, I, I, I think if you really look at it, much of our policy and institutions and traditions even are demand us to be non-empathetic if you've ever been an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. you know the task of the entrepreneur is how can i um, find or create a need that isn't being fulfilled Mm -hmm. and how can i own it and garner a percentage of that energy that need Mm -hmm. for myself so it's twofold it's not only solving the problem but structuring the solution in such a way that a percentage of the energy goes to you. Mm-hmm. And that demands that you not be part of it, which is completely the opposite of the way we give in a family situation. Mm-hmm. 
You know, it is our programming to give without thought right. of recompense. You know, I mean, that's one of the most, and, and, and people abuse that all the time. When your dog dies and you go to the vet and he tells you it's going to be $1,200 to cremate your, your pet. Yeah. You know, he's, he's working on your guilt. On your, you know, how could you not? How could you not? When the college says your, your bill is due, it's $25,000 for this quarter to, right. to feed and house your child, you know, and why do you do it? Because you are supposed to. When, when your country calls you and says, it's time for you to fight in this war, why do you do it? You know, because... Um, because you owe it, too. You owe it. You, if you, one thing that's changed over the last 20 years is people, if a human being said 20 years ago, my favorite thing to do is shop, <laughs> they would be seen as an out-and-out, shallow idiot. Today... The idea of shop till you drop is a career. Is well for some people it is yeah. a career. The Instagram you brand know, am, brand ambassadors, brand yeah. ambassadors. It's a career. Uh -huh. or, you know, unboxing videos. You know, these are it's a career, and those are reflections that show us the the walls of the boxes that we've built. You know, one of my favorite stories about that is post nine eleven. You know, I was right here in this neighborhood. I was. I watched the buildings fall from the top of the rooftop and I went down to help. Yeah. Um, I volunteered. And in that moment after the towers fell in New York City, watching these people streaming by me covered in dust, you know, you know, giving them water to wash their eyes, mm -hmm. you know, the whole city was in the sense of shock. Hmm. They were knocked out of their forebrains. And the entire city was in its heart it's morning heart hmm. and it was in a, it was in a in a daze and i remember uh, like second or third day the sense of disbelief that i was having that it was that everyone was still in that state they wouldn't move out of it and i had this thing happen inside of me it was like a flower blossoming and i was like i am happier now than i've ever been in my life and i was so guilty about it right but i was happy because for the first time in my life, everything made sense. I looked into the eyes of my fellow humans, and I saw a human being that I could absolutely understand look back at me. And I was, and then Rudy Giuliani got on the radio, and he said, "People, I know you're hurting. I know you're in pain. I know you're suffering. But let me explain something to you. You can't stay in your apartments. This city runs on taxes, and if." You guys don't leave your apartments and start buying things. The, the city is going to go bankrupt. Okay, we can't exist without commerce. And I need you to shake off your feeling and go buy. And, and everyone was like, okay, Rudy, okay. And they, they stumbled out. And, and I was watching it. You know, the whole mm -hmm. engine started up again. Yeah. And I watched it. And then I watched, like, that permeability of everyone who was around me it just start to dissipate until the cloud came over everyone and I was once again in a world that made no sense to me. And I had one moment of like where where it all made sense and it lasted for days and and I'm guilty to say that. I felt guilty for years to say that wow. There's that great piece Oliver Sacks shares with Radio Labs shortly before his death where he talks about trying to find indigo. And he 
Twice he'd seen it. Once was after taking a number of drugs in an attempt to induce a state where indigo would be welcomed into his life. And he, you know, talks about how he was never enamored with the idea of the divine per se, but that when he saw this thing appear after demanding it, this color that he knew then was indigo, just appear there as a drop for him to share, stare at and appreciate it, and vanish. And then a second time years later, it crept into his life for a flicker and was gone again. Those were these strange moments where he couldn't define it, but there was this greater sense of self or other, or the thing beyond all of that. And for him, it just appeared in a flicker as the color indigo, but it never stayed. It's hard. It's hard to, I think, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, to keep that moment of mindfulness, to stay within it from the prayer, from the ritual, from the enact, or the moment that induces it, to the point where you're brushing your teeth or banging your drum in the name of the Buddha or a thousand See, other things. Here's where I am with that, which is, I think, a little novel. You might be interested. I, I told the story before I made a film. I tried to make a film called Enlighten Me. Okay. In which I went to the wisest person I could find. And I said, look, I will be your disciple. For a year. <laughs> I will do whatever okay. you tell me. All I ask is that at the end of the year, I'll be enlightened. Can you, can you do that? Sounds reasonable. And they smiled and said, you know, okay, we'll try it. Sure. You know? And so I, I meditated mm-hmm. every day for between 40 minutes and eight hours a day. Um, I did all these things, and it did change my life. Um, was I did I was I enlightened? No, but I realized that we have this Calvinistic streak in us. Mm-hmm. It's very Catholic, actually. It's the idea that you have original sin, right? That you're flawed, mm-hmm. and the corollary of that is that with enough work, you can become perfect. You can become enlightened. You can become holy. You can mm-hmm. become a saint. You can transcend the flesh. You can. All of these things. Well, there's something I'm starting to see. And I'm starting to see how much energy we put into separation. Into separating ourselves from other people. From ourselves. From nature. From everything. And I'm starting to understand that there is a field. That that you don't exist. I mean, you are... Where do you end and the world begin? You know, you're, you're mostly water. The cells in your body, you count the cells. There are more bacteria in your body mm-hmm. than your own cells. There are more. Mm-hmm. By weight, it's not true. By number, it's true. Right. My flesh lives within you right now. You've breathed me into your oh, body. From the moment I walk into you, those two ions or ecosystems are changed. Uh, exactly. So there's this idea that the idea of the individual is an outmoded concept. And if the individual is an outmoded concept, then therapy is kind of silly. You know, achievement is kind of silly. And what isn't silly is the understanding that actually we exist in a field and that that life is this kind of interesting spark in the field. And what I've begun to realize is that you can shift into the field without effort. Okay. Without effort. Like it doesn't take 10 years of meditation. It doesn't take chanting. Like literally the shift from your way of being into a slipping into the field of of life and energy. And the self disappears almost instantly in that. It still exists like a like a beautiful picture on the wall. Right. And you carry it with you and you carry all those memories. Mm-hmm. But they're they're like pictures on the wall in a way. They're not you. Yeah. And you're not you. And you're not you. And the container, the view, not you, holding the thing that is not you, but resembles you and those pieces of you. Right. 
And so it, it's it's a, a skill. It's a capacity to dance, if you will. It's funny, and it's sad, and it's beautiful. It requires knowing how to laugh at yourself, how to find the beautiful, how to share them. Well, laughter. I, I like to talk about this. Laughter Sure, is interesting. You know, when is a door not a door? When is a door? When it's a jar. When it's a jar. Okay. Now, what's funny about that? What's funny is that it's a door. Yes. No, it's a jar. No, it's a jar. <laughs> no, it's a jar. Yes. No, it's a door. Mm-hmm. Okay. When human beings are presented with proof that the world is not one thing, but it's many things at once, mm-hmm. we laugh, you know. And what is laughter? Laughter is shaking in between two places. <laughs> it's vibration. It's molecules connecting, separating, coming back together again in different shapes. Same with tears. What is tears? What is what is what is crying? Breaking of barriers. Right, but there's a, something about it's a kind of letting go. Well, there's a reason we refer to it in English as shedding tears. Shedding tears. Well said. So the point being, you know, let me keep more. You know, the little death, you know, mm-hmm. orgasm, again, another shaking, robbing, uh, shedding of, of your... There's displacement, there's disruption, there's moving out of state. Like, those are some of the peak moments of our life. Laughter, tears, orgasm, mm-hmm. you know. And to me, those are, are field moments. You know, those are moments when we stop being ourselves, because we're not a door, we're not a jar, we're not a jar. You know, we are in the space that isn't three things or two things. You know, we spend most of our time trying to be mm-hmm. in the space that is one thing, mm-hmm. you know? And in business, all we do is create thing, one thing, and promote the one thing. But that's not really the magic of life. You know, the magic of life is this field dynamics. You know, it is the capacity to exist inside the field and, and to watch it dance and to even if you become profound enough to change the flows of energy it's funny you look at films so often and one of the the tropes the motifs we go to so often for that moment of rapture is the field of fireflies at twilight when light no longer is out of state where it can easily define what is day and what is night when there are smaller bits of it flying around of their own volition and their own mating and existence and you are fully immersed within that, running through the field of weed or grass surrounded by fireflies. It's the shorthand we have, or things like it, driving through the city at night with all the neon lights flashing to the point where buildings no longer exist. You're in a city, you're on a road, you're in a car, but where is everything? You don't see it, you know it's there, but your eyes don't define those things. There's that visual, there's these visual cues we tend to, to fall into to suggest a character state of being in that place. And it's fascinating how they, they do give that sense both of vastness, but also particular or particular things within that you can find yourself suspended among in appreciation or just there. And I think in a way, it's part of what terrifies us most about looking at space and going, are we just a piece of this? I'm your host, Jared Surf, and this is Michael Rosado Bennett of Alive Inside. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. If anyone wants to join us in our movement of connection, um, visit aliveinside.org and drop us a line. So that's our show. If you have your own story that's sad, funny, beautiful, or weird, please feel free to share it with us at myfirstname.mylast at gmail.com. I do promise we will eventually have the full email back up. 
And if for some reason or another you don't have the sad, the funny, the beautiful, the weird in your story, don't worry, we'll add it on the show. So that's all for tonight. If you like what you hear and you want to show you as a born, you can subscribe to us at patreon.com slash Diaries. That's with a Y for a dollar or more. There are all kinds of rewards, including access to our online workshop and Discord. Of course, if you have a story of your own that you'd like to share, or have us revise, you can write to us and my name dot my last and hear me tires. See you all next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.